Would you please join me as we stand together and read from God's Word? You can turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 999. Uh, This is our second to last week in our short series of summer sermons through Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was the pastor of the Christian church on the Greek island of Crete. And his mentor, his apostle, of course, Paul, writes to him a letter on what it means to build a healthy Christian church there in the Greek culture. And we've said multiple times throughout our study of Titus's, of this letter to Titus is that Paul's instruction is quite simple. Appoint sound leaders who teach sound doctrine that belongs with sound living. And our theme, sound leaders, sound doctrine, uh, sound living that even show up in our text today, which is verse 8 through 11 of Titus chapter 3. So let me just go ahead and read our text for us, and then I pray that God would bless our time in studying it, and then we will begin together. So here now, for God speaks to you this morning, right now, through His Word. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that by those so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to Your Word, indeed thanking You that it is living and active, that You have breathed it out for our correction You have inspired it for our edification, so we pray that you would nourish us in the truth this morning, that you would sanctify us by your word, that you would even unify us in the good news of your Son, who saves sinners like us. So we pray that you would do good to us, that we might glorify your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more useful and prolific resources that I have in my study, if it is quite dry and long-winded, is a three-volume series of works by a 17th century Swiss theologian named Francis Turretin. Uh, These works are titled The Institutes of Elenctic Theology. Elenctic just means teaching by way of refutation. And it's a name that many of you might not have heard of before, but he is one of the most vaunted and famous names in systematic theology. One person has called him the best expounder of the doctrine of the Reformed Church. Another says he's a marvelous synthesizer. Another says he's a towering figure among Genevan reformers. Uh, The late R.C. Sproul called Francis Turretin one of the three most brilliant theologians in church history. And the reason I mention him this morning is because he tends to teach in a question-and-answer format. What he'll do is put a question out there, and ordinarily he's going to refute it. But he's going to put this question out there and then begin to answer the question 
in order to instruct God's people in truth. And he has what is in theological circles a very famous two-word phrase that tends to introduce a lot of his answers. It'll be a question, and he doesn't begin his answer with, we affirm or we deny, even though he's teaching by way of refutation. He tends to say, we distinguish. What he means is, it's much more complicated than you really thought. And the reason I tell you that is because in a way that you might not have realized, even if you've been with us in recent weeks through Titus, Paul is teaching Titus by way of refuting false doctrine, false living. He is distinguishing for Titus. What is the difference between a sound leader and a false teacher? He's distinguishing for Titus the kind of godliness that belongs with the gospel over and against the kind of ungodliness that marks false doctrine. Or even we've seen recently in chapter 3, he's distinguishing for Titus the life we used to live in sin. And now we are to live as redeemed children of God, sinners set free from the bonds of iniquity. And what he's going to do today in our text is distinguish yet again. If we have eyes to see, we're going to see Titus urging us to discernment in our life together. Because kids, you might have noticed there's a wordplay right in the outset of our text. If you look at verse 8, he says, insist on what is profitable. What does he say in verse 9? Leave aside what is unprofitable. He's helping us understand, as a church together, what is the exact priority and purpose that we're aiming at as a church body together. Because perhaps some of you have grown up in the Christian church. Maybe you've been around enough different churches to understand how many local congregations today can often be so weighed down with the matters of ministry that it becomes entirely difficult to rest and meditate and rejoice in that which is of first importance. The good news that Christ Jesus is the only Savior for sinners like you and me. And so what Titus is hearing from Paul this morning is what is the bullseye on that target of church life that he's intended to hit there with the Christian churches in Crete? What's he to emphasize? What's he to insist on? And you can kind of summarize the, the simple point that Paul's making today is that a healthy church is unified on the centrality of the gospel and good works. A healthy church is unified around the priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that He saves sinners, and the good works that necessarily flow from our trust in who Christ is and what He has done for us. And so students, you'll want to pay attention this morning because Paul is giving you, with very simple language, clear ideas, what is to be the center point of every Christian church. So, Lord willing, in the next few years, when you grow up and have independence from your parents and you find your own church, maybe away from this place that you're joining, out of state, maybe when you're at a college university campus, you're, you're knowing what the kind of life they are meant to live together, what's the purpose at which they're to be aiming at in their church health. But also for us as members of Redeemer, what we get here is the apostolic remedy to a disease that plagues every single church throughout the ages at some point in their life together which is the disease of division. How are we to deal with divisive people in our midst? And so we'll see in verse 8, Paul tells us, be devoted to what is useful. Verse 9, don't be distracted by what is useless. And then verse 10 and 11, it's here's how to deal 
with division. So if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, here's what you need to know really in the previous seven verses of Paul's instruction because what we see hangs on what we just looked at in the last two weeks. In verse 1 and 2, Paul tells Titus, remind the Christians there in Crete of how they're to relate to non-Christians. The summary exhortation came at the end of verse 2, show all humility to all people. Or what our ESV translates as perfect courtesy to all people. And then what he does in verse 3 through 7 that we saw last week, he gives the theological and doctrinal reasons for the reminding. He says in verse 3, remember who you once were, captive in sin. And in verse 5, there's this great announcement, he saved us. And so he's telling them to reflect on who you once were and now reflect on who you are in Jesus Christ. You once were hated by others and hating everyone. But now you've been saved by the goodness and loving kindness of God. You once were slaves to passions and pleasures, but the Spirit has set you free through His regenerating work. You once were entrapped with malice and envy, but now Jesus Christ has justified you by His grace. The triune God has done it all. Why wouldn't you be marked by humility towards all people? And so after the long run-on sentence of verse 4 through 7, we get verse 8 and Paul's call to be devoted to what is useful. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. Now, students, you want to know what the saying is. It's just that run-on sentence of verse 4 through 7. This is a formula Paul often uses in his pastoral letters in particular. He says, this saying is trustworthy in deserving of full acceptance. It's his way of putting like flashing, blinking lights around a particular truth, saying this is most important. And if you trace out the times he uses this phrase, it almost always is when he's just emphasized something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying this saying is trustworthy. It's as though he is, with the Spirit's inspiration, uh, placing his stamp of quality control on what he has just said. Apostolic inspection, apostolic investigation says this is trustworthy. This is a statement on which you can rely. This is truth on which you can base your entire existence. God's sovereign love in saving sinners. That statement is trustworthy. Notice what he says we're to do with it. And so I want you, as he continues in verse 8, to insist on these things. Things we saw last week. Father's mercy. Spirit's power. The Son's grace. Insist on these things. And it has a purpose. It has a purpose, you see, in verse 8 as he continues. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on the gospel so that those who believe it would devote themselves to good works. Uh, the word here for devote, it's, it's kind of interesting in the way it was used in the first century context because it, it kind of paints this picture almost literally of standing in front of something. And it was ordinarily used of a shopkeeper who would stand kind of on the street in front of his store or in front of his stall and talk to people as they came along the way and says, hey, come, come see what I'm selling. Come, come see what I've got, the goods inside. And it's why some commentators think actually what Paul's saying here with devote themselves to good works is urging sinners recently converted to Jesus Christ there at Crete to put off their disreputable jobs and actually take on an honorable vocation like the shopkeeper. But I think it's probably best understood, uh, much more likely best understood as this general exhortation 
that we in Jesus Christ are to live a life as which we are in our Christian life, as it were, standing on the curb of society, calling people, come, see. Come, see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Come and hear the glory of Jesus Christ. Come see these good works. As Jesus himself said, let your light shine so they may see your good works. And what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Devote yourself. Be careful to these things. So say someone knows you well. Maybe it's a family member. Or someone actually was given eyes to see the truth into who you are. What would they see that you are most devoted to each and every week? If they were given ears to hear What would they hear that you are most devoted to in an ordinary month? Where does your deepest devotion lie? What is your greatest emphasis exist? Devote themselves. Be careful, Paul says, to good works. Why? Look at the end of verse 8. He says, For these things are excellent and profitable for people. Uh, You see, he's used the phrase, these things again. I think now he's speaking about these things being the good works he's just mentioned. These good works are excellent and profitable for people. So you make sure your theology of good works is right. Not these things are excellent and profitable for salvation. Not good works are excellent and profitable for redemption. Not excellent and profitable to earn God's favor. But what? Excellent and profitable for others. I wonder how much intentional time you take longing with careful devotion to be a blessing to everyone you come across each and every day. This is the ordinary implication, Paul says, of trusting in Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel, devoting yourselves with care to good works, for they are profitable. They are excellent for all people. Devote yourself to what is useful now he's going to say, don't be distracted by what is useless. If you remember your history classes well, you might remember how in October of 1453, the Ottoman Empire laid siege to the great bastion that was Constantinople. This was a city that had faced no small number of onslaughts and sieges and assaults throughout almost a millennium of its existence. And every single one of them they had repelled in large part because they had these vaunted walls. They almost seemed indestructible. You couldn't get over them, you couldn't get through them. But the Turks brought with them during that initial blitzkrieg a cannon the size that no man had ever seen before that even the walls of Constantine's city couldn't stand against. But the citizens of Constantinople thought that they were, based on previous history, quite safe. So when the siege began, citizens there in Constantinople were just milling about their ordinary business. And the story is said that monks and Christian teachers had important theological matters that they needed to attend to while the war was going on outside. And supposedly what was on the first order of the day's docket was settling the long-established controversy of how many angels can dance on the head of a needle. And whether or not it's true, because I doubt it to a large degree, it nevertheless illustrates a principle that's true of humanity. Foolish quarrels often blind us to what is most important. We can so focus on silly arguments, not recognizing that there is something much more magnificent and even significant around us, yet we have not eyes to see. That's what Paul is saying, you'll notice in verse 
9, as he begins the contrast, as he's distinguishing between profitable and unprofitable things in the church, he says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies. He's said this already, more or less, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 14. He says, these false teachers, the circumcision party that is infecting the church there at Crete, they're devoting themselves to these man-made myths, these Jewish legends. And we said something about that weeks ago, but in case you weren't here or you forgot, here's what was happening with the false teachers. You, you maybe have read through the Old Testament and recognize it doesn't take you long. It's actually only like four chapters in the book of Genesis. Chapter 5, you run into a genealogy, this long list of names, this long family tree. If you ever read Chronicles, it's like everywhere in Chronicles. And a lot of times Christians struggle reading those lists because it's dozens upon dozens of names that you know nothing about. Well, in the first century, it was dozens upon dozens of names that your average Jew knew nothing about. But what the false teachers were saying is, is that focus on Jesus Christ, his sufficient atoning death on the cross, wasn't actually sufficient for a wise life of godliness. Uh, what you needed were these myths from Jewish genealogies to instruct you in truth. So they would like open up to First Chronicles chapter 1, see a list in a genealogy and say, hey, uh, we know nothing about this Zedekiah, son of Mordecai. So they would invent a story. They would create a legend. They would bring together an allegory of this Zedekiah that supposedly lived in such a way that we ought to emulate and we ought to imitate. And they were saying, this is the secret wisdom that you need to grow in godliness. And Paul's saying, run away from that kind of man-made mythology. Not just that, you'll see as the text continues in verse 9, he says, avoid dissensions and quarrels about the law. Uh, you, you may have read, particularly the Gospels, well enough to know how the Jewish teachers of the time in the first century were very good at quarreling about the law. They were most famous for their quarrels on how to keep the Sabbath or what made a person clean or unclean. So, for example, the Jewish Mishnah, just kind of extra-biblical document, pastoral commentary, rabbinical statements on what you do find in the Bible. It has this famous list of 39 different categories of work you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and false teachers loved to quarrel about this stuff. And they invented such arguments, or I should say such requirements from their arguments. For example, you are not allowed to look into a mirror on the Sabbath day. You might see a gray hair and decide to pluck it out. Such would be reaping, which is breaking the Sabbath. If you had the candle lit when the Sabbath evening started, because it was sundown to sundown on Friday evening, you weren't allowed to blow it out. That was too much work. If you didn't have the candle lit, you weren't allowed to light it. But then this mysterious level of Jewish hypocrisy at the time, you could pay a Gentile to light it for you along the way on the Sabbath. One of the funniest ones, which is quite true, you could not, or, or you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath day, but you couldn't spit in the dirt. Dirt and spit combined to make mud, and that's mortar, and making mortar is work on the Sabbath. You see it, don't you? Quarrels, foolish, silly quarrels about the law. You want to underscore that word foolish. It's actually the Greek word from which we get our English word moronic. That's the kind of emphasis that Paul is saying here. That's the kind of stuff to avoid. Foolish controversies. Moronic quarrels about truth 
that doesn't matter. So you'll see, of course, his apostolic verdict on such infighting at the end of verse 9. He says, they are unprofitable and worthless. Just as unprofitable and worthless as it would be if I went out to the golf course and took a baseball bat and tried to tee tee off on a par 5 and drive the ball about 250 yards down the fairway. That baseball bat has no value, does it? Controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels, utterly no value in the life of the church. Don't be distracted, Paul is saying, by what is useless. Instead, be devoted to what is useful. And then now, in verse 10 and 11, he tells us how to deal with division. I think it was in the fall of 2012, so, you know, it was about seven years ago, I was invited to sit in on this panel at a church conference. And the invitation came from the senior pastor at the church I was serving at the time. There was three of us who were on staff at a church nearby, and and we were invited, the three of us, to, to sit in on this panel, actually answer questions on the panel related to planting and growing a healthy church. And so for about an hour from about 100 different church leaders, we received all kinds of questions related to planting and growing healthy churches. And the very last question came, how do you deal with a divisive person? Now, at the time, was the youngest member of the staff. Uh, The other two brothers were very close friends in ministry and very much my seniors in ministry. And when that question was asked, they had this look between the two of them, because I was sitting between the two of them, Look between the two of them with a twinkle in their eye that said, let's give it to Stone. <laughs> and so, sure enough, one leaned over and says, have fun with that. And the reason it was kind of have fun with that is I was a young pastor. How much wisdom and experience do I have to speak into a question? How do you deal with a divisive person in the church? Thankfully, I had my Bible on my lap. I had a verse in my mind. So I said, let's go to Titus chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. I talked with this brother who asked the question after the panel was over. He said, I have to be honest with you. I didn't even know that verse was in the Bible. How did I miss it? Maybe you're in the same boat. I didn't even know. This simple exhortation about how to deal with division is here in the inspired text. So let's see what God has to say to us. Verse 10 begins, as, a person, as for a person who stirs up division. Interestingly, that whole phrase that I just read in the ESV is only two words in the Greek. It means a heretical man. Because the original word for divisive person in the first century context was heretic. Because heretic, it took years for that to take on the connotation and meaning that we tend to attach to it now. At the time, a heretic, a divisive person, was simply someone that just chose their own party, chose their own group, chose their own school. It was the kind of person who tested truth based on their own ideas, based on their own ideas. And in the subsequent seven years since that panel, I've had uh, no small number of chances to encounter divisive people in the life of the church. And if you have discernment, you may have seen such patterns true within such people in the life of the church. Often divisive people pretend to be animated by, interested in a promotion of unity and church improvement, when in reality, They just tend to want to promote their own ideas at anyone's and everyone's expense. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you know that a decisive person tends to be a person that is complaining when everyone else is celebrating. Tends to be a person that disagrees when everyone else agrees. 
tends to be a person that doesn't know the difference between a critical mind and a critical spirit. It's the kind of person that's very slow to repent, but very quick to judge. It's the kind of person that thinks very highly of the Spirit's illuminating work in their own heart, and so little of that same Spirit's work in another's heart. As for a divisive person, Paul says, warn him. I wonder if you know such a divisive person. You live long enough in any Christian church, you will encounter one. I wonder if you are such a divisive person. Understand the urgency and seriousness with which God takes division in the church. You see, as verse 10 continues, As for such a person, warn him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him. Uh, This seems to be something of Paul's echo of Jesus' teaching, very, very famous and foundational teaching on church discipline that you find in Matthew chapter 18. But it's as though Paul is speaking to Titus, knowing that there are these divisive people that are infecting the church there at Crete. And he says, here's how you need to have a clear conscience and clean conscience in dealing with them. Warn them once, warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. The word for warning is actually, it's kind of this full word in the Greek. It's admonishment, counsel, instruction. It's not just warning, stay away from the ledge. It's come back to the area of safety. It's the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Where it says, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction. Same word as warning here in Titus 3. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. So when you find a person fomenting division, go to them once. Counsel, instruct, admonish them. Repent of that sin. Restore unity in the church. They don't listen. Go to them a second time, Paul says. Come back to unity. Confess your sorrow over your breaking of Christ's body. And then, if they still don't repent, you have nothing to do with them. That's probably Paul's language here for excommunication. What he'll say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to another young pastor in another place, dealing with false teachers and divisive people. He's handed them over to Satan by having nothing to do with them. Certainly it does mean at a very practical level for us in the church is that you don't give that person a consistent audience with their division. Because to give them continued voice and an opportunity to speak is just to inflate their false self-centered sense of importance. Basically, push the mute button on them and move on. Why? Look at the end of verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. It's quite blunt, isn't he? Divisive people that don't repent, they're warped, perverted, distorted, sinful, full of iniquity. They themselves are condemning their hearts as evil and unrepentant because of their stirring up of division. Uh, Distorted people stir up division because they don't care about pulling apart and breaking Christ's body. Distorted people foment division because they think it's wise to introduce conflict into a scene that is peaceful. Distorted people stir up division, earn the sternest warnings that you're going to find from Paul in this letter. I wonder if you have that kind of a sense of division, that it's that serious, that Christ cares about unity that much among his people. Warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. You know, earlier this week on Wednesday night, we were having a small group at our house, which is 
uh, an affair of sanctified chaos. There are so many in our house at the time, and we were studying uh, Galatians when uh, one of the children ran in and said he got a bee sting. And our small group mates at our house, you know, it's like 25 of us adults talk about Galatians where too many kids are outside, you know, playing around. And we don't have bees and wasps at our house. So I'm like, what bees and wasps? What, 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 what are you seeing out there? So I walk outside, investigate the scene of danger, and promptly am stung by a bee. And 24 hours later, because I guess I'm allergic to some degree, my hand had inflated to this like balloon-like quality and size, having a hard time holding anything. Emily even asked me, she said, where did it get you? And I said, see right here? She's like, I can't see that. You know, this little pinprick, which is actually still right here on my hand. One little spot that infects the entire appendage. Division functions in the exact same way. One little word can then swell up into division. One little statement swelling up and robbing the body of health. Or kids, you might think about it this way, a different metaphor to attach to it. Uh, one of my other children was playing this week and he was building this tower, castle-like tower out of blocks and it took him quite a while you know, to get it all sorted out. And then one of the younger children comes by and with the look that a toddler has in seeing such a tower, pokes it. <laughs> and then there's a cry, he destroyed my tower. Unity takes a long time to build. You can destroy it in a second with division. So Paul's urging clarity and courage, dealing with division, that we might not be distracted by what's useless and we might be devoted to what is useful because a healthy church is centered on Jesus Christ, His gospel and the godliness of good works that belong with it. I've taken a few different writing classes in the course of my life and read uh, many more books on writing. Uh, I want to be able to be good with words and learn how to get better with words. And one of my uh, favorite books on writing is a book uh, titled Words Fail Me. And if you've taken these classes before, read these kind of books before, you see certain lessons of writing and clarity of communication that come no matter the resource, no matter the teacher. And one of them is pay attention to the verbs so in her book on words fail me, what everyone who writes should know about writing, Patricia O'Connor, she says, verbs are the life of the party. Here's to the verb. It works harder than any other part of the sentence. The verb is the word that gets things done. Without a verb, there's nothing happening. You don't really need a sentence at all. Find an interesting verb and the rest of the sentence will practically take care of itself. Now students, you might be like, I thought I came to church today. Not the grammar lesson from Jordan. Well, here's my exhortation to you. Pay attention to the verbs in Scripture. They carry much more meaning than you might at first realize. Underline all of them. Kids, you can circle all of them in our passage. That's where the action happens. That's where the movement of truth comes into the Christian life. And so as we begin to close, I want to emphasize two verbs that we already saw. But think about them, meditate on them more, because they represent Paul's distinguishing profit from what is unprofitable. Paul's discerning what is good, what is not. Paul's separating what is useful and what is useless. And the first negative one, look back at verse 9, is that verb that begins, avoid. Which reminds us that we're to steer clear of man-made myths. Steer clear of man-made commands and controversies. One of my sisters was over at her house recently and she was showing me all these little online clips that she uses in text messaging and social media communication, you know, instead of using words to communicate the point of what she's trying to get across. And 
one of the best ones uh, I've seen is this very brief clip of this 18-month-old toddler with all the grace and agility that you would expect of such a child barreling through the hallway. Then evidently it sees something that none of us know what he sees. And then with that same speed, agility, and grace, turns right back around and returns to the room that he came from because something scared him. Something caused him to flee the scene. That is is almost exactly the kind of way a void is meant to be taken in verse 9. It's to turn oneself about. It's to come across something and then flee the scene. It's to see quarrels. It's to see controversies and say, I'm getting out of the area. There is no use. There is no profit in such arguments. And we may not have in our context today in 21st century North Texas Presbyterian churches genealogies and mythologies for increased piety. But I hope you know we do have foolish controversies. We do have unnecessary quarrels. How many of you know that Christians in such a sad way can divide over convictions related to schooling, use of entertainment. They could go on down the list, perhaps even in American evangelicalism for the last 100 years, the most common, unnecessary, dividing, quarrelsome point has been what you believed about, or what you believe about the end of all things. Predictions about Christ and His return. Seer clear, Paul says, of such man-made commands and controversies. Instead, the second exhortation is stand firm on the gospel and godliness. Look at verse 8 once again. What's the, what's the big verb there that starts us off there in the middle of verse 8? I want you to insist on these things. Confidently assert, more pointedly, uh, speak all the way through, Titus, these things of God's sovereign love in salvation. Uh, I'm sure you know, every church insists on something. Every church leader insists on something. Every church member, or at least most church members, tend to insist that their church leaders insist on something so that the church insists on something. We're people that insist and emphasize. What do you insist on most? What do you emphasize most? And we've been thinking about this in Sunday school throughout the month of August, but we want to have care when we come to places like this and not be so quick and rash to point the finger out at other traditions and other denominations and not recognize that first and foremost, we have to point the finger to ourselves. What might be the things on which we insist that we ought not to insist on with such zeal? Think about it immediately. What might be things we insist on that are far in the periphery Certainly not primary, yet nonetheless, the things by which we tend to rally around. Liturgies, polity, that's extra-biblical, philosophies of ministry, particular programs of Christian discipleship. I want you to hear from me that all of those are necessary things to think through in any congregation, but they are peripheral. And we must be careful to recognize the difference in what we are trying to create in this culture and our life together. It's not a rallying point around what happens in the order of service. From this element to this element, done with this way, with external formality. Church programming done this way to these kind of people with this kind of expectation. Particular polity 
required in this way, in this manner, so that this can be done. All those are good and necessary. But you need to know there is no spiritual power in those things to unite God's people. We are not a church that wants to be a place that rallies around most things of extraneous external formality and secondary, tertiary, peripheral importance. What do we then unify ourselves on? These things. A Savior who has come for sinners. The Father's mercy, the Spirit's power, the Son's grace. Why? Because He is the animating, empowering, motivating force that can unite us together. So when we say that the healthy church is unified, on the gospel, that a healthy church is unified on the centrality of good works in the Christian life. What we are saying at the very core is we are longing, praying. Paul is mandating that we are a healthy church centered on Jesus Christ. He is the truth that we teach. He is the one to whom we belong. He is the one to whom all power, grace, forgiveness, mercy, all unity is found. So what we want to hear from ourselves in our life together is, yes, steer clear of all this man-made commands and controversy. Have the wisdom to discern when you should talk about it and when you shouldn't. Also have the wisdom, the obedience of Scripture to stand firm on the Christ of the gospel, the Christ who works godliness into his people, because there you will find true, joyful, life-giving unity that is a warm and winsome witness to a world that needs that very Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be a people who are humble, and we confess that we often are not. Uh, we want to be a people that are patient, and confess that we often are not. We ask that you would help us to insist on the right things, to concentrate on the good things, that Christ indeed might be all in our life. That would be true of this congregation, that we would proclaim him with all wisdom, with all teaching, warning everyone, exhorting everyone, so that we might be perfectly complete in Jesus Christ. Give us that desire. Give us that energy. Help us indeed to steer clear of uh, that which robs us of joy in Jesus Christ, that he might be exalted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.